welcome to the Blue Mountain Center podcast. My name is Luke Nathan, and I'm joined by... Zohar Getless. Zohar, um, I'd say it's winter here. Winter. We just skipped fall. We went right to winter. Yeah, well, we had a couple days with really pretty leaves. Remember that? Mm-hmm. The sugar maples turning red and orange. and I'd say that lasted a week. But I something. said it was the best fall. You said it was not the best fall, that last year was, was a better fall. Yeah. Well, we both collectively have two years of experience. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. same two years. Mm-hmm. So, y- y- you know, take, I guess, what both of us say with a grain of salt when it comes to Adirondack Falls. But you, you cited a local who said that this fall was not as good as last year's right. fall. I cited Lori Murdoch, who mm-hmm. helps out in the kitchen here. And she noticed that the colors were not as vibrant and bright. Um, And I had a conversation later with Harriet Barlow, co-director of Blue Mountain Center, who agreed with that sentiment. And we thought maybe it was because it had been a dry summer. Look, you've you've, um, assembled an impressive uh, supporting cast that have testified on your behalf. Who am I to disagree? But maybe it's just that I live in the moment. And so whatever is in front of me is the most beautiful thing that I've ever seen, and I'm able to live that way. So That's really good for you, Luke. <laughs> Zohar, I'm glad you're so evolved. <laughs> Who did you talk to this week? Um, so I actually didn't talk to this person this week. I talked to her over the summer. But this is, we're going to be playing an interview with you that I recorded with Jane McAlevey, who is a longtime... Um, fighter for justice. She's been involved in a number of movements from a very young age, which we talk about in the podcast. Um, But she's probably most well known for working as a labor organizer um, and authoring the book um, Raising Expectations and Raising Hell, My Decade Fighting uh, for the Labor Movement. So, which I think came out maybe... Four years ago, I'm not actually a hundred percent on the, at the date. I'm looking at the inside the book cover right now. But, Can you hear the pages? <laughs> 20, uh, 2012. 2012. It came out in 2012. It's in hardcover. It's in paperback, um, and it's a really great book. Get it now. Buy it now, or soon, or never. I don't know. You should. It's a good book, though, right? It's a good book, yeah. and it's a good interview. Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, let's listen up. political family and then you did student organizing in college and then some environmental organizing and activism but you ultimately ended up in labor so I want to hear just how you got there sure to labor sure yeah great uh, and it's lovely to be talking to you Zohar. Oh, thank you yeah um, so the family was quite political that is true and um, I think that the labor origins make sense if I go back in time in terms of what the politics were. Um, my father was initially put into public office by the Carpenters Union, um, and it's because he came out of the Carpenters Union, and also because his his entire side of our family were sort of leaders in the building trades unions in a much more militant era, meaning the turn of the two centuries ago. 
so he was a politician, and by the time I was young, my mom died, which meant I spent a lot of time with him. And what he was doing then, because he was a politician, was dragging me to picket lines and to strikes and to union halls for endorsements. I was the proverbial, like, bring the little baby that people can kiss kind of... Uh, uh, thing. I was like a tchotchke, like a side a prop. I was basically my father's prop as a child. Um, uh, it's just that the prop usually went to things that related to unions. Um, and I have really incredible memories of a bunch of picket lines because there were many more strikes, of course, in the 1960s and 70s than we see today, which we can come fast forward to in a few minutes. But so um, there were so many more strikes then. So in short, you know, it was like an indelible part of my childhood memory was being on picket lines and occasionally by him being parked, I would call it, in the Carpenters Union Hall. And then by the time I sort of came of age, I started doing direct action in junior high and high school. Actually, I was thrown out of high school for organizing an almost 100% out walkout in a very large high school, um, which may be an early uh, foray into understanding how you get to 100% out on a strike uh, many years later. Why were you walking out? Um, it was actually over really uh, an, like anti. It was really a bullying issue on the part of the high school, which is Rampo Senior High. They imposed. They decided that they wanted to become a great. We had it was a good school, like it was a highly rated sort of public school system, and they decided that they wanted to have like a really you know badass sports program of some kind, which of course is funny because I like to do lots of sports and I'm a sports fan. But what happened was they instituted these bizarre and really really horrible. Um, uh, uniform requirements that were that was literally trying to force people to essentially be like a Barbie doll in a uniform if you were a woman. Um, and they were horribly demeaning um, uniforms for everyone, men and women, that you're going to have to start wearing as part of gym. And it sort of, it turned into this crazy respect fight um, and like basic defense of people's right to have different kind of bodies. And, you know, it was like bizarre what the walkout was started by, except that it was a respect issue, which I think is why most workers wind up walking out um, uh, and striking also, even though there's other surface issues, right? It's like at the end of the day, it was really a fundamental, like, what's my right as a student to have the kind of body I want and not have some really obnoxious new coach on a, who had come to our high school decide that everyone had to like get fit in the most profoundly obnoxious way. Anyway, so that was, and there was lots of activism that we were going to DC and protesting mostly anti-nuclear stuff. If you just think of the era, that's like the eighties, um, early eighties in high school. Um, and that, and yeah, so that was it. Um, and then college, yes. In college, I became a student activist, I think almost like right away. And that's, I blame the Cuomo family for that <laughs> because Mario Cuomo at the time had just gotten elected as the governor of New York. And he campaigned as this big progressive liberal, and it was my early lesson about how much they all lie, because the like first state of the state he gave in New York, he introduced in his first budget, he introduced the highest single tuition increase in the history of the public university system. Um, and that was sort of like, that's what we get for electing this Democrat, right? It was like the biggest single increase in tuition in the history of the public university system. And it was just sort of like, not happening, mofo. Like, you are not doing this to us. Um, and we ultimately actually that year defeated his entire tuition increase. Like, there was zero, uh, which was a good lesson about fighting again. Um, anyway, so one thing led to another, student politics, yada, yada. And then when I came out of student politics, I traveled in Latin America because um, I wanted to learn Spanish very badly um, when I was 19. And I wanted to also understand firsthand sort of what was happening with uh, what I would call Reagan's, Ronald Reagan's wars in Latin America. Um, 
Uh, I definitely grew up in a family that was on the peace program, right? My father had been a World War II fighter pilot and, um, yeah, didn't believe in war anymore. So I went to Latin America and the relevance to that and the labor movement was I met a bunch of really brilliant trade unionists in Central America when I was there, um, sort of learning Spanish and meeting trade unionists. And it was the first time I think I really deeply understood that it wasn't just that I didn't I didn't seem to identify much with the contemporary labor movement's leadership at the time, which is like late 1980s, early 1990s. But I was learning firsthand in Latin America that the AFL-CIO, which is the American Federation of Labor, Congress of Industrial Organizations, was actually funding um, counter movements in Central America that was resulting in the murder and assassination of trade union leaders. Um, that's how in bed the old national leadership of the American Federation of Labor, Congress of Industrial Organizations, was by the late 80s and early 90s. They were actually involved in programs that were getting real trade unionists in Latin America murdered um, by right-wing death squads. And that, so I was on the cusp of trying to figure out, right, I came out of the student movement. I'd already been to lots of organizer training. I'd been to Midwest Academy. I'd been sent away to get organizer training. I already felt like I had a good sense that there is this thing called being an organizer and having a method and there's a craft called organizing at a very young age. But um, so when I when I came back from Latin America was sort of the pivot. I didn't I had thought maybe I would go right into the trade union movement. That was sort of what my father certainly assumed. Um, and uh, the political education I got in Latin America made me come home and sort of be like, I, I just can't do that right now. I can't be involved with people who are um Anyway, so I, I wound up going into the environmental movement. That wound up being my work for many, many years, and that took me to Tennessee. Um, I think there's going to be a little marker there, and then we'll get to labor. Back to labor, because it's sort of in there the whole time. But at one point, I got recruited to go live at a place called the Highlander Center in Tennessee, work at a place called the Highlander Center. And again, I was sort of, it was my young 20s, and I think I didn't, I always thought the Highlander Center was a place for the civil rights movement. That's what you always heard. This is so typical in America. Like I associated the Highlander Center in Tennessee as the place that Rosa Parks went to get practice and get ready when she was head of the NAACP before the bus boycott began. Um, and, uh, you know, Martin Luther King had been there and Southern Christian leadership used to hang out there and SNCC and everyone did trainings there because it was a safe space in the South where you could do interracial work. Um, what I didn't even know until I got there, like on that amazing history, and I began to walk through the archives, was that Highlander had been the official labor education and training school for the Congress of Industrial Organizations for the CIO. And every, no matter what I did, everything in my life kind of kept coming back to trade unions um, and labor. And so finally, fast forward, uh, you know, 1996 happens. And I say 1996, it's really 1995. We're on the 20th anniversary. It's actually quite germane to be having the conversation. In It was in September and October of 1995 that smart, progressive, radical, forward-thinking, trade unionists at the rank and file level who had been fighting for decades to change the U.S. labor movement um, succeeded uh, in running the first contested election in the history of, in this country of the American Federation of Labor Congress of Industrial Organizations, the merged labor federation. So 1995, a whole new team wins, and the first thing they say is we're going to end all those bad programs in Latin America we're involved in. We're going to divorce ourselves from being linked to the Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA, and all sorts of really 
and uh, and very quickly after that, people began to recruit me um, heavily to become an organizer. And uh, there we are in the labor <laughs> movement. So it seems I'm gonna fast forward even more now and say it seems now like you're writing about power pretty broadly, um, and so it's attached to things outside of the power is something that's applicable to the whole system. It's not just about labor environment or anything else. Um, but you seem to take, you still take the lens of labor and it seems really central. So why from that point did you stick with it or why is it the lens of choice? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Here's the deal. There is no question in my mind that, um, organizing as a concept, uh, which we can talk about, that organizing is sort of what we actually have to do to rebuild a base to challenge the massive inequality that's happening in this country. And since I had done both student organizing, been trained as a community organizer, worked in Latin America, um, and then went in, you know, environmental justice movement, and then into the labor movement, there isn't any question that when I'm thinking about power, there isn't a way to get around that we actually have to rebuild a trade union movement as a fighting force because it is the most um, effective sector for people to do bottom-up organizing for a lot of reasons. Um, But so, you know, I went off to school for five years. That changed my relationship to Blue Mountain because I've begun to write a lot, right? I came here to write my first book, Raising Expectations and Raising Hell. And I have spent uh, a good deal of time working on my second book um, here, which is called No Shortcuts, The Case for Organizing. At least that's my title at the moment. Um, And the more I look at just from a straight methodology, like in some ways, I can't say forget ideology because that's ridiculous, but almost from a straight methodology, like where can you get to scale the fastest? How can we do bottom-up organizing in a way that's fundamentally empowering Uh, to the largest number of people so that we can contest for power again in this country. There is no other movement except the labor movement that is going to get us back to the sort of fighting force that we need to be that we once were in this country. So um, every examination I do of every theory of organizing, every model of organizing, you know, uh, leads back to the idea that, um, that there are methodological reasons, not just ideological ones, why trade unions offer our best hope for a decent future again in the U.S. Can you break that down a little bit for me? Um, Well, I want to go back and ask, can you explain a little bit what organizing means to you? And then from there, talk about why uh, trade unions as and their model of organizing as a methodology is the most effective. Yeah, sure. Um, So I think several things. Um, the best the best thing to say initially, well, so if we break it down this way, so organizing is the process of uh, relying on actually people, ordinary people would be the key word, like that the idea that ordinary people have the capacity to make great change in this country. And I would argue if you look at the 1930s and 40s and then the 50s and 60s, the two periods of great hope and great change where really significant victories were won, which was the era of the Congress of Industrial Organizations, the CIO in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, before McCarthyism, and then the Black Power and Civil Rights Movements um, in the 50s and 60s. What's interesting, if you look at them from just an organizer's view, um, uh, is that both those movements relied on what I call a structure, 
Um, I'm going to call them structure-based organizing, meaning or contrasting that with, for example, the environmental movement often, or the women's movement, or a whole series of movements where I'm, I'm, what I'm writing about in book two is that there's, first of all, do you decide that your strategy has to involve people? That's a, that's a decision, right, that people have to make. Like Ralph Nader and the Pergs, for example, there's a whole bunch of folks or Greenpeace who do like advocacy work where it's like the model is we write them checks and they go out and campaign on behalf of people. And they don't pretend to involve anyone. And it's mostly smart lawyers and a bunch of public relations. And I'm not going to diss it in the sense that um, cars are now safer, for example, and people don't die on the road because they have seatbelts and, and lights that stay on and all these things that Ralph Nader type groups have done, what I call advocacy. So that's advocacy. It's like lawyers and public relations. But it doesn't really involve ordinary people. In fact, advocacy groups are usually like filled with a bunch of people with a lot of degrees and, you know, they're well-read and they've gone through law school and stuff like that. And then there's just ordinary people and the power of ordinary people. And that, to me, is what organizing is. I think what's happened is that there's a huge confusion, and this is really why I'm at Blue Mountain right now. There's a huge confusion, I've noticed, in the U.S. where we don't understand the difference between what's called a mobilizing approach versus an organizing approach. So to me, just to take one cut on it, an organizing approach relies on, for its leadership, ordinary human beings. Not paid staff, not full-time people getting paid by an organization. A mobilizing model has developed in the last 45 years in the U.S. that's very staff-heavy, it's very staff-driven. This is not to suggest that organizing doesn't involve full-time staff, it does. It's that the agency for change in the organizing model rests with ordinary people, and the agency for change in the mobilizing model rests with smart staff. Um, and that might seem a little bit obscure, and I'll try to make it more real, but that's that's fundamental to me. So, um, so organizing that relies on the intelligence of ordinary people then is both mass and scale, and at the center of it is the identification of what I call an, org an organic leader, um, which is a worker in a facility who is well-respected by their coworkers and their peers. And that part of the skill of organizing in a good union campaign is the first thing we have to do is sort of identify who are these natural, organic, informal leaders in the workplace, meaning who's most respected. That, by the way, they might be anti-union for all we know, right? Like, that's the whole point, um, is that a true leader is someone who simply has the most respect of their coworkers. And people don't wake up in this country in some vision that Karl Marx had or something. They don't just wake up rad radicalized and revolutionized or something, right? So, um, but the skill set is about identifying organic leaders, sort of informal leaders. And then ca can we hopefully persuade those people to be decide that having a union is the way to solve problems at work. So so why is it better? So that's structure-based. I want to talk about structure-based versus self-selecting, because this is part of what's happened in the U.S., part of what's gone wrong. And I'm going to argue that self-selecting issue work, which is like someone posts something on Facebook and says, hey, come to a square, we're going to occupy it, or um, please come to a meeting um, about if you don't like pollution, come to this meeting, or if you think something has to be done in City Hall about, I don't know, my issue... Then you post it on Facebook and you say, come, and then people come to a meeting, maybe even a lot, but that's what I call self-selecting. Like they've just walked into the meeting because they're already interested in your issue and they're already predisposed to be on your side. Whereas in trade union organizing and even the church-based model, again, that's a structure. So what's structure-based organizing? I think of the church, the black church in the South was a structure um, and the workplace is a structure. And structures matter for several reasons in effective organizing, because one, 
it's a place where people come together and build relationships. And I think that organizing is all about building relationships and also destroying relationships. The relationships we're trying to destroy are the elites and the relationships that we need to build are among and between um, people. And we can do that better if they're already in relationship. So a workplace is an amazing structure that where people already have a relationship, they come together, they talk, they, you know, have hobbies together, they don't, they drink together, they don't, they do sports together, they don't. And the black church played that role in the U.S. South and the civil rights movement. So, so one thing about structures that make it, I think, more effective than self-selecting is that people are already in relationship. In a self-selecting model, you're putting out a thing, please come to my meeting, blah, 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 on issue, blah, blah. Um, and then people are just starting to get to know each other, and it's a whole different process of how to do solidarity building. But in the structure-based organizing, workplace and or um, faith-based, we might call it now, um, you got a structure. So the other thing is not just that people know each other. It's also that you can very quickly figure out, um, do you have a majority of those people or not involved in what you're trying to get done because the structure is defined. If it's a church, it's got a thousand members or 2000 members and a big one. If it's a workplace like a hospital where I spent a lot of my life, um, they can be anywhere from 400 workers to 4,000, 5,000, 6,000 workers. But the concept of the structure um, matters a lot if we're enabling, if we're trying to understand how to find the most respected people who are already in relationship with, with each other to get something done, having a structure is a much more effective model, I think, than what I'm going to call self-selecting organizing. How is that effective in building a broader movement outside of the workplace? Yeah. I think that that was, I'm trying to go back to something you said earlier, and right. I heard that, um, and that is, I, I want to know that. Yeah, good, sure. Um, yeah, so I guess a couple of things. One is, I think part of the problem that we suffer from in the U.S. is that, um, the you know, the people who advertise capitalism to us um, our Madison Avenue. Like we live in the country with the best public relations machine, like probably ever known on planet earth. As far as I can tell, I wasn't there a thousand years ago in the Chinese empire, but you know, we have an amazing, uh, uh, amazingly sophisticated system to make people in this country, um, think that everything's fine, that we're the best. And if it's not the best, um, that if there's something wrong in their lives, it's their fault. Um, and that is a deep challenge uh, to organizers, just to get people to realize that things are not their fault. So what's evolved in the last sort of 40 years is that we have this sort of evolution of something called like a freestanding community organizing movement, which I'm going to argue is self-selecting. Um, and, and what's grown up since the heyday of the, of the powerful labor movement in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, post-McCarthyism, is this idea that we can have a lot of power in the community by having a community-based organization in each community. That's fundamentally not linked up to a sort of to a theory of national power or to how to contest for national power. And I, I put a lot of that on this guy named Saul Linsky, um, who essentially wrote Rules for Radicals, which, which a generation of leaders today and for the last sort of 25 years have all been schooled on and read. And what people miss about the history of imagining that we can have community power that's independent of trade union power or independent of workers is that even Alinsky didn't think that back in the 40s and 50s when he was first writing and thinking about building a community labor alliance model. Um, he says over and over, and I've been writing about this, my assumption is that there's a powerful trade union movement that's solving large meta 
issues in the economy that affect workers. Because guess what? When he was creating his first organization called the Back of the Yards, there was a very powerful trade union movement in this country. And it was actually, right, advancing, um, uh, advancing, you know, the working class in some really great ways for many decades. So I think there's been this delinking. There's this idea that you can have like a community-based group and that that's going to actually be able to muster the kind of power that the trade union movement can muster on a good day. And I think that's that's the era. So the, the, the idea that I have been playing with a lot, both in real life and my work in the labor movement and now in writing about it, is that the better way to build power in the community is to build a strong union first and to build a strong worksite organization that takes advantage of that thing I was talking about, of a structure, um, to identify what's called organic leaders in the workplace and one thing you can be sure of in this country, which makes workplace organizing as a structure very different than church-based organizing as the other big structure, is that if you do workplace organizing, the boss is going to start a war against the workers. There's no way around it. It's actually just going to happen. Like, the workers will soon find themselves in a war. It's actually a class war. We just don't talk about it that way, right? We talk about intimidation campaigns, and we talk about employer interference. It is a one-sided class war, and they have been winning it for about four decades now. So to rebalance that, um, I think that, that, that well, let's go back to this church thing for a minute, because so, so, I think it's so important. In the congregation-based organizing model or the faith-based organizing model that's evolved out of Solinsky's work, um, there, there's never a well-funded opposition that comes in to the church when they're trying to then do one-on-ones and have an organizing conversation and recruit people and say, um, you know, campaign viciously against whether or not the community group is formed. That never happens. There's no well-funded organization contesting for every parish priest who invites in an industrial areas foundation group or something like that, right? So to me, this goes back to the question of what's the fastest way to build, to rebuild a bottom-up movement with skilled leaders all over the country. Um, workers will be forced into a war, a class war by their employer in every work site in a fight, in a real union fight. And so one, two, because of the way the deck is stacked against workers in this country, you know, staff, of course, we know officially can't be inside of the private sector workplace, the staff of a union, because by law in America, which most people don't know, union staff are barred completely. And even other volunteers who might be members of another of at a different workplace, none of them can go into a workplace. To me, what it's forced is a sharpness of our skill set. It's forced the idea that um, that we can teach workers uh, to figure out who the most respected among them are and then how to recruit their own network of the most respected worker leaders. And then they actually will fairly quickly be tested in a very, very intense war. That doesn't happen in faith-based organizing. They may eventually in a faith-based organizing decide that they're going to go along and campaign for a better budget in a city or campaign for better schools, but they are not thrown into a war zone where their leadership as ordinary people is tested and their leadership is developed at a very high fighting level. And that is a really important difference in union organizing. And so to me, we need essentially armies of skilled, talented people all over this country to take on the kind of power structure that we're dealing with. So all the way back to power, it's like we need armies. And I so am not afraid of using military language because I think we're in a class war. We are in a goddamn class war. This is a class war. So when very peaceful people say to me, oh, there's that war language again. I'm like, I don't know if you open the newspaper. We're in a war. So the question is, how do we build a people's army? 
and not just a bunch of raggedy tag things, like people can actually defend their communities and defend their workplaces from really powerful people like the Koch brothers. Um, for us to think it's anything but that we've got to skill up a bottom up movement of really well developed leaders all over this country who are ordinary people will never have enough money to pay them all. There's not enough money on planet Earth to like pay for a staffed up movement the way that we need. We need a ordinary people's led uh, movement and it's also equally stupid to think that people don't need to be developed and trained to sort of have a fighting skill, to be have to have like mini captains, mini soldiers, mini generals. We need like tons of field generals all over the country. And they learn that in a tough union fight. Ordinary people come out of tough union fights if they win them with unbelievable confidence in themselves and their capacity. And I think that what the working class in this country doesn't have because capital and the public media and the messages and your employer and your neighbor and a lot of people tell you every day you're just stupid. Working class people in this country are told every day you're just stupid and you're not doing well because you're not as smart as the guy who went to Princeton or Yale. And that is, of course, total crap, right? So the question is like, does an organizing model um, give people confidence? Uh, can we actually give the working class in this country the confidence to fight? And I think really good union organizing is unparalleled in this country as a method to sort of give enough people who are very ordinary people uh, the fighting skills to actually take on the Koch brothers. I don't think any other method is going to do it. And I think that we're 45 years into an experiment of weak community organizing and weak self-selecting organizations that uh, pretty well have revealed the fact that they don't have a clue about how to build the kind of power that we can build in a tough union fight. So when and why did you start writing about all of this? Because you were organizing before, and now you're, you're, you're on book number two. Yeah, yeah, I am on book number two, thanks in part to this Blue Mountain Center. Um, you know, the why I began to write is, in fact, a bit uh, odd. Uh, although it, I think you as someone, Zohar, who I know has been involved in some union organizing will relate to this. I mean, I think that, um, you know, I love organizing work. I love it more than anything on planet Earth, actually. Um, uh, I love, uh, actually, the experience of helping, teaching. I think my job as an organizer is to teach and coach, right? So um, I love to teach and coach ordinary people through a big fight and then wa walk away and have them like be like incredible leaders um, in their own workplaces, in their own communities and say goodbye to them and check in every once in a while. And, you know, but so I think for people who love to do organizing and who love the work, um, I always joke it would take, you know, I used to joke when people would say people have been trying to encourage me to write long before I started. That's for one. Like people have been actively saying to me probably Five years before I started uh, to really write, people were saying to me, you should write. And I'd be like, I'm way too busy to write. Sorry. Um, I love my work. I'm way too busy. Um, and I used to joke that, you know, you would have to like tie me down if you wanted me to write something, right? Like I would not voluntarily just sit out a year or two of fighting. Like I like to be in the fight. Um, and so, of course, what happened was uh, besides the internecine warfare that was going on in the union movement, which gave me pause in about 2008, um, what really made me actually write um, were several things. One, um, uh, I was diagnosed with cancer and I was facing nine to 16 months, they weren't sure at the time, um, of sort of massive levels of just a lot of surgeries um, and a lot of work in uh, a cancer hospital. So uh, they sort of said to me, 
we understand that you um, you work your stress out by being an athlete, you know, an informal athlete, right? I do a lot of sports. And I said, right. And they said, well, you're going to have no capacity to do anything physical at all for nine to 16 months. Um, and enter my old comrade, Bob Ostertag, who said to me, I've been telling you to write. I've been telling you to write. I've been telling you to write. Um, I'm going to help. You just need to start writing, like start writing. Um, and I'm going to counsel you and coach you sort of like the role that the role the organizer plays. I think in some ways Bob was playing with me. He was like my organizer coach about writing and, um, and then, uh, you know, connecting right to where we are to blue mountain. Um, there was this person named Harriet Barlow saying, yes, right, right, right. And come here and write. Um, and even though I had been at blue mountain center, you know, numerous times in my life for political workshops and for, yeah, for the workshop sort of cycles. Um, I had never, because I wasn't a writer, I never thought about like applying to be a writer because uh, yeah, I had never really been a writer. I'm not even sure I still am. I still can't quite say it. People are like, oh yeah, you're on book two, you're a writer. Anyway, so, um, so what literally did, I think what grounded me, what replaced the idea of my, my joking for five years that someone would have to tie me down uh, was sort of the cancer center. It did actually tie me down. Um, and I was pulling my hair out from absolute boredom. Once I got past the terror, didn't last that long because, you know, uh, I think organizers who go through a lot of fights, you wind up with some sort of fearless character about you. But, um, uh, but I literally was laying around for a long time. And uh, to the point where Blue, so I came to Blue Mountain actually the summer that I was going through a bunch of procedures, um, almost to my detriment. Uh, the, the cancer center said it was okay for me to come here. Um, and Harriet had talked with the staff here who sort of knew I was coming in a slightly precarious way after one of my big surgeries. Um, and that wound up being a disaster because I had to leave. In fact, I couldn't stay because <laughs> I had a medical uh, disaster while here. Um, cause I was rushing it, not surprisingly. So at any rate, I left, but then I came back and, um, I write because I'm not, I, I think because I apparently am able to articulate uh, what organizing actually means with a set of words. I find it very challenging. Um, I'm not sure, frankly, after this next book, well, I have planned for two more books. One is almost done. That's what I'm working on here. That's the No Shortcuts, the Case for Organizing book. And then uh, I'm talking with Verso about a book three. Uh, which is going to be more like a how-to, more of a training manual that goes along with raising expectations. But honestly, um, I've, I've said to several people, like, that's it. I got nothing more to say after that. Like, I, what I have right now is a set of experiences. I think that I was trained by some of the uh, most unbelievable mentors in the trade union movement. Um, so the training was amazing. And uh, I've had some success at taking what's a training uh, and turning it into narrative. Um, that's interesting enough, apparently, for people to want to read. And my goal in life is to get people to understand the very question that you asked in the beginning, which is like, okay, we need a lot more power than we have. And there re all this crap that goes on in this country about how we're going to beat these guys, blah, blah, money, blah, blah, Democratic Party, blah, blah, all these other little random movements, blah, blah, show up at Zuccotti Park and get protests in a park. That is not going to do it. Um, so I'm just sort of taking my passion about understanding, having taken on really powerful corporations and beat them, meaning with tens of thousands of workers, we actually experienced beating really powerful capitalist corporations 
uh, that's it, kids. Like, that's we're, we're either going to get back to doing that or we're just going to, like, slit the proverbial wrist of the American society and call it over. I want to ask how you first came to Blue Mountain Center and met Harriet Barlow. <laughs> it was so many years ago. Uh, you know, it was it was probably one of the least planned. It was really accidental. I guess that's the word. Uh, here's how I understand how it happened. And you might have to ask Harriet, actually. She might even know better on her angle. But the very first time I came here, I was 19. 19 or 20. We're always trying to figure that out. I was either 19. I may have just turned 20. I think I was 19 years old. But you'd already led tons of huge actions and organized. Yes, yes, yes. yes. So yeah. I just came out of jail. The point was, how they found me was um, in, a, in, a, in a nationally headline-generating fight um, uh, that involved me uh, being locked up in jail um, with a real jail sentence, which none of us thought was going to happen. Um, but it's it's an early lesson of something we said in the labor all the time, which is the boss is the best organizer, um, meaning the power structure overreacted to a bunch of college students. We did a direct action. We shut down the state university headquarters. The issue was divestment. Um, divestment was raging on the college campuses, and we were doing actions, really taking leadership from the Afro-National Congress here in the U.S. about what did they need us to do. Um, at the State University of New York, there had been an attempt to divest the you know, huge funds, um, investment portfolio, uh, for a decade going, and it just wasn't getting anywhere. And then I became elected head of the state student union, what we would call at the time the state student union. It gave me a seat on the board of trustees of the state university of New York. I was like the de facto student trustee, which meant I had all access passes to the upper echelons of the building, which became crucial. Um, cause I wound up opening a bunch of doors and locking another bunch of doors with my all access pass, which got me in a significant amount of trouble, which was just perfectly fine by me. Uh, we did a mass occupation. We had sort of learned the lesson from the early labor movement that like saying, let's go out to the square. You're just going to get like surrounded and beat up by someone. So our solution was just to take over the financial headquarters of the state university of New York and occupy it and chain ourselves to it and lock everyone out. And, um, so it got a lot of attention. Uh, and more importantly, we won. We actually won the campaign. So I got a phone call one day from some folks. (laughs) I got a phone call from some folks at the U.S. Student Association, the United States Student Association, which is still in existence. And it's actually still a really good training ground for young folks to get good organizing skills. Um, And so so some leaders at the U.S. Student Association who had been, you know, defending us, helping us in our trial whatever. I mean, it was this weird moment when the, when the police, this is, this is towards strategy. There was a weird moment in the trial and the chancellor of the university was frankly just a bad strategist. He just needed to not lock up young, white, blonde haired kids, frankly, who had taken over building. It just was, it just, yeah, we like when they do that, right? It was like the modern equivalent, like Bull Connor. He just wasn't very smart thinking about what he was doing. So, um, there was a moment when the judge said to us, because they were prosecuting us pretty intensely, uh, that um, you could either, we could either have, we would have a 30-day suspended sentence that could be invoked any time we did a direct action again, um, or we could just go right to jail. So we're like, in the strategist we were, we're like, you know, I did a press conference that said a suspended sentence if, for me to take any direct action is going to put me automatically in jail. No, thanks for going right now. Like, lock us up. Go ahead. Okay, so that, so that, so... So this is the Ronald Reagan era, right? Now, um, people who were leading like the philanthropic sector, foundation executives at the time, 
Uh, there was more and more progressive people coming into the foundation world in the U.S. for the first time really ever in the 70s and 80s. Um, foundations and philanthropy was traditionally only the purview of sort of conservative, either building, uh, you know, institutionalizing building of buildings, putting bricks and your name on them, and more it was conservative. And there was a wave of people coming in, um, coming off of the 60s and 70s, who were getting access to smaller pots of money, um, of wealthy people who wanted to actually do something constructive with their money, progressive, let's say, not just conservative forces. Um, and so I got a phone call and they said, um, you're wanted to give a speech at a place called the Blue Mountain Center, it's going to be at a meeting. There's going to be a gathering of um, emerging leaders in philanthropy in the U.S. Uh, who want to fund advocacy, organizing. I don't know what the words they were using back then were. But um, basically, they were doubtful. These, these are people who had been in, in the student movement in the 60s and early 70s. So they'd been through sort of the militant, you know, SDS and SNCC. And, and their perception was by the 1980s that students were just useless, um, that Ronald Reagan had persuaded students to vote for him. There were all these college Republicans running around. But Harriet Barlow and several others, actually Richard Healy, Colin Greer, Barbara Dudley, I think at the time, not Barbara yet, but it was Harriet Barlow was on the leading edge of this, was saying, this is actually wrong. There's a ton of really good student organizing going on. We shouldn't write off the youth. In fact, we can't write off the youth. Youth have always been an essential part of the development of every movement in every country. And that is really true. Um, so I think Harriet Barlow had this vision that um, she wanted to persuade a bunch of new, newly established foundations and newly established foundation executives that they needed to not give up on students and youth. In fact, they needed to really work on figuring out where were youth and students who had radical and progressive ideas, not conservative ones. Um, and that was sort of all I, I didn't know. I didn't even know that. I just was told um, I needed to be available to go to this place up in the middle of nowhere in the Adirondacks to give a speech. And that's all I knew. Um, and I got picked up and I, um, at 19 or 20, walked into the Blue Mountain Center. It was Harriet's second year not even not even a full second year into the establishment of Blue Mountain Center. Um, and I remember walking into the big room with the big fireplace in the main house. Uh, and I was a bit intimidated because I didn't really actually realize I didn't understand who the hell any of these people were. But I trusted the person who had made the phone call to me, you know, um, from the U.S. Student Association. Uh, I don't That's think how I organizing had... work. Yeah, exactly. I don't think I did not have a single note. I didn't have like I had nothing. I just walked in. I had, was fresh out of jail. We were fresh off a huge victory, and they just said, "Tell us the story of divesting the state university," because at the time it was the single largest act of divestment in the entire divestment movement. Um, and so I just sat in the big room in front of the fireplace, as I recall, and just told the story. Um, of the multi-year effort, which involved a lot of direct, you know, we'd been arrested more than once, but the, the stupid time, the, the, when the chancellor overreacted was when they decided to prosecute us. Um, so, and I just told the story. And then uh, apparently later, there were some people down in the dock, I'll leave the names out of it, um, but some of the more mo mainstream or moderate folks who were here, who were like on the edge of the discussion at the foundations, Apparently a very prominent one of them, again, no reason to mention names. Apparently I just told this guy off on the dock because he said something really stupid to me about um, that the public interest research groups, the PERGs, which were these very, I thought were the equivalent of like 
taking money off college campuses, not really developing students. Um, and they were like, just a way to fund a staff operation to do advocacy work. Um, I just basically said that and went on a tirade that it was actually that really working class students in public universities, not rich kids in private universities, were the future of the student movement and had a very strong opinion, uh, which apparently I let out in very clear ways to um, to the great pleasure of the majority of people who were at the Blue Mountain Retreat on whether or not to fund the student uh, and youth of this country. And apparently that impression uh, was so substantial because every time I run into about five of them to this day, um, there's a lot of time passed since I was 19, they will still say when they're introducing me to people, you should have seen her tell off. Um, so apparently I made an impression on them and uh, I was then invited back to other workshops and retreats. But I really, un I understood Blue Mountain Center to be a place for for important gatherings. I didn't have any understanding of what the writing component was. None, like none. I was like, do writers come here? I don't think I knew that for like decades. Like I just thought Blue Mountain was a place where people came to work out sometimes really tough issues, you know, in, in different sectors or different organizations. Um, uh, but that's the first member came here. And um, it's been an amazing gift to me. And I think both of the political meetings I've been to but definitely since I made the decision to start writing with encouragement from Ben and Harriet and the Blue Mountain Center, um, it's been a really, it's been a really essential institution that has been nurturing my new skill of writing. Great. That was a great story. I've never heard it before. Um, and I know it's your last day here and you're anxious to go on a bicycle ride. So um, thank you for coming in and talking to me. It was really fun. My pleasure. I want to thank Jane for coming in and talking to me. Um, and I want to thank Ben and Harriet, as always, and my co-host Luke here at Blue Mountain Center. Mm -hmm.